Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Prudential. Prudential believes life is filled with moments that test our courage. Their podcast, Everyday Bravery, celebrates those moments with stories to help you face your own challenges. Subscribe to Everyday Bravery now, wherever podcasts are available. This podcast was recorded live in the Grammy Museum Experience Prudential Center, the first and only experience of its kind on the East Coast, located at 165 Mulberry Street, Newark, New Jersey. For tickets to visit the museum, please visit www.grammymuseumexp.org. This is Leaders Create Leaders, and I'm your host, Gerard Adams. This is a podcast showcasing today's change makers who dedicate themselves to creating the best tomorrow possible with vision, with hustle, and showing up world class. They offer advice, they offer lessons, but most importantly, they offer you their mentorship because leaders create leaders, and leaders are the ones that are impacting our world. It goes without saying that being a strong entrepreneur requires tenacity and focus. Hustling to achieve your dream is not an easy process. But over time, seeing your hard work and goal setting come to light is the ultimate payoff. On Leaders Create Leaders, we found a few voices whose journeys not only delivered them to their goals, but has taken them to new heights, impacting the next generation. I am excited about this episode. We're about to go and meet up with John Henry, who leverages his voice to invest in his community as a mentor and a teacher. I mean, he started his first company at the age of 18, and within two years, he grew that business from zero to seven figures and successfully sold it by the age of 21. He's also the founder of Co-Found Harlem, the first tech incubator north of 96th Street and a partner in Harlem Capital Partners, whose goal is to change the face of entrepreneurship by investing in 1,000 diverse founders over the next 20 years. As we sat down with John, we were able to glimpse what a self-made entrepreneur in a different sense than what we've experienced in our previous episode looks like. John Henry's respect for his background has become his entrepreneurial strength, a leveraged talent for authenticity which precedes execution. Please give a warm welcome to the one and only John Henry, y'all. Amen. Yes. So I guess we'll kick off for those that don't know, who is John Henry? Maybe go into like your background and how you got into entrepreneurship. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So I, first and foremost, am the very proud son of immigrant parents. Um, That is the most defining part of my journey because that whole facet of my experience has shaped the way that I look at things, has shaped the way that I approach things. And my mom and dad come from the Dominican Republic, and we grew up uptown Manhattan in the Heights. And, you know, we grew up like uh, most people grow up uptown. You know, there's six of us in a one-bedroom apartment, and we grew up really broke, but we grew up really right. You know, like the, the family dynamic was beautiful. You know, it was arroz con pollo and dancing oh! bachata. And, you know, my it was, mom makes the best arroz con pollo, bro. Hey, shout out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming over after it. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it was that, it was interesting though, because there was uh, scarcity in terms of material things, but there was no scarcity in abundance of, you know, my mom did a great job of nurturing me. Hey, she looked at me when I was in kindergarten, I'll never forget. She said, John, you can be president. 
And the bravery, the tenacity, the audacity, the forward thinkingness that it takes for a mom in the hood growing up where your environment is nothing but crime and drug dealers in danger, but life and fun and all of these things intermingled. And we hadn't had yet a black president. So for my mom to say, hey, you can be president early on. And the reason I start with that is because that obviously is the most fundamental ingredient to anyone's recipe. So beyond that, I was raised initially uptown. Then we went to Florida because my mom's like, this is no place to raise a family. So we went to Florida. When we came back, I graduated high school, decided to come back to the city. I had the small town blues. I wanted to become great. And that's with a capital G. I wanted to become great. Why? Because I had this chip on my shoulder of having never come up with anything and having seen my parents work so hard. I mean, my mom was a custodian in a hotel, cleaning toilets, that was her job. My pops was a presser in a dry cleaner, you know, getting paid 40 cents for every pair of pants that he pressed. Like that was our reality. And I knew I just wanted, I feel like I owe it. It's selfish if I don't go out there and be the absolute best that I can be. Parents so, work too hard if you're not too They work too hard. Like, we can't squander this opportunity. So with that, um, I came back to the city. I worked a job as a doorman. And, you know, that's where I say opening up doors for people helped open up doors for me. I was, you know, I did that job with a lot of pride. Why? Because my parents did their jobs with a lot of pride. So what excuse do I have? And it was through that kind of attitude that I got exposed to a resident whom you know, uh, Hugo Sanchez. And that resident who was a Puerto Rican guy. Look guys, when I saw someone who had more than me, I always made an excuse as to why that couldn't be me. And I would always dig around for it. Like I, you know, didn't go to school and you know, so if someone would say, hey, I, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that and they're successful, I would say, mm, did you go to school? And then they'd say yes and I'd be like, oh, that's why. You know, some people would say, hey, I'm now a director. I'm now an author of this and that. You know, and they would say, oh, but my mom, you know, paid my way through this or paid my way through that. And so slowly but surely, when you come from a very disadvantaged perspective and, and experience, you start seeing that none of the examples that are before us are truly relatable to you. And you start becoming disillusioned, at least I did. And I was like, man, I feel like I know I can make it. Like my mom tells me that, but can I really? And it wasn't until I met an individual who had come from way more disadvantaged circumstance than I did, who, you know, served time, everything, came out and, you know, and became a self-made millionaire. And he said, boy, he said, what are you doing behind the desk being a doorman? You need to put the work in so you can have your own doorman. There is no excuse. And he was the one who presented me with my first business opportunity, and that's how I got started. Similar to my path, John didn't graduate college. While fortunate enough to attend for a semester, John left to begin his first business in dry cleaning. He sold that business by the time he was 21, but there was some time before John can build the courage and the motivation to actually such a bold and powerful move in his life. School was not for me because I'm the kind of guy, you know, at work, I was always trying to innovate the experience of the building, you know, and my managers were like, this kid, you know, I was always like, wait, wait, why can't we greet the residents with an iPad? Why can't we wear different colored suits? And, you know, the answers were always super constricted. You know, people are just like, I'm just following the rules. I'm like, bro, the rules are not there to improve. Like, if who cares about the rules if you have an idea that you've come up with in your head as to how you can improve the situation? And I felt constricted in school. I felt constricted in, at 
work. And when Hugo came along, this resident in the building, he showed me what entrepreneurship was. He said, John, did you know that there's a reality out there in which you can carve your own path 100%? And I sat with that. And I said, no, I didn't know that was such a thing. I mean, my mom sold super soakers in the park during the summers, right? Like I come from a family of merchants, but being a merchant from an immigrant community is a little bit different than being an entrepreneur. Same essence, but it's a little bit different in terms of execution. And so anyway, he would give me little projects. I used to work the overnight shift, man. How many of you guys have heard of that Kanye West song? I've been working this great shift and I made shit. I wish I... So that was how I felt. I was like, damn, I'm working this overnight shift. Like, so he would give me a little project here and there. I would start doing them. We started building a rapport. And by the way, that's how you get a mentor. Don't DM me asking about, can you be my mentor? Just don't do it. Like, that's not how you get a mentor. The way you get a mentor is you reach out to someone. You say, hey, here's what I'm dealing with. Like, I admire your path. I respect your, your perspective. Here's what I'm dealing with. When that person shares a, a bit of advice, execute against it. And then you say, you come back the next week and you say, hey, I've done what you said. Here's where I'm at now. And then that person is all of a sudden is caught off guard and they, they present you another thing. And it's in that back and forth. That's how you build a mentorship, a beautiful relationship where you know it's a teacher-student thing. So anyway, eventually Hugo said, hey, look, I have a, a facility, a big dry cleaning facility. That was his business. He had a franchise of dry cleaners. He had 34 dry cleaners. And he said, hey, look, I'm going to give you access to my facility, which is very expensive because they, you know, it's millions of dollars worth of equipment, a lot of staff. He said, I'm going to let you clean clothes here for dirt cheap. You just convince someone to give you their clothes. You bring them to me. I'll clean it on the cheap. You charge the market rate. You make the spread. So this blazer that you have on, nice blazer, would cost you $7. I would go to a guy like you and say, hey, how are you? My name's John Henry. I, I like your smile, this and that. Wow, you look dapper. What do you do for work? That's just work on you. And eventually I say, look, here's my card. If you ever need your dry cleaning done, I'll handle it. Eventually you'd be like, damn, I kind of like this kid. You, you give me a call. I bring it to Hugo. He charged me $2. They charge you 7 I make $5. That's the spread. Eventually I was like, damn, that's $5. Sounds like, you know, not a lot. But if I'm doing 100 pieces, that's bread. And no matter how much times I open this door and how many times I smile, I'm not gonna make more than the 12 bucks an hour I was making. So now I started to understand, mm, this is what entrepreneurship is. And by the way, when I started, I didn't know what venture capital was and this and that. I just knew you put in the work, like input equals output. That's what entrepreneurship means to me. And so, you know, I went on that path. Eventually I got introduced to the film and the TV industry. And I worked my way into this industry and I started doing the dry cleaning for the Wolf of Wall Street. Boardwalk Empire, Law and Order, and afterwards, you know, then that's when it began to flourish. John's beginning was difficult. Coming from very little, John's motivation spurred from the inspiration that being a self-starter didn't mean beginning somewhere with a safe leap. It means just starting. During our discussion, we dig deeper into John's experiences and picked up some secrets to entrepreneurship that many aspiring entrepreneurs might neglect from the outside looking in. The importance of time and the importance of personal investment. Well, who here is working on a side hustle? 
Leave your hand up if you want to turn that side hustle into a full-time hustle. Okay. Leave your hand up if you think that your obstacle is money. Okay. What's your obstacle? If it's not money, what is it? Marketing. Marketing. Who else has one? What is it? Time. You? It's focusing on best practices. Okay. The reason I did that is because I, I think this is a special room. In many cases, I think people are tempted to believe that the obstacle is money. And I was going to dive in and explore how that's rarely the obstacle, really, when you start. Homie said himself, marketing, best practices, focus. These are all excellent answers. I think that when you're starting, for all those who have their hands up, it's a side hustle. That's the biggest blessing that you have right now. The fact that it's a side hustle means that you have limited time. You're doing it on the side. Tight time is efficient time. You'll be surprised once you start doing it full time, when your time opens up, you start not knowing what to do and you get lost in the time. And that's all you've been praying for. All you've been praying for is, wow, I want to do this thing full time. When you start doing it full time, you're like, I don't know what the hell to do with all this time. <laughs> so your tight time right now, that is your blessing. You don't have to quit your day job. You just have to quit your leisure, right? So if you work on that, eventually, it will cost you more money to stay at your job than it does to leave your job. Until you get to that point, you're not ready. So when I was working as a doorman, I was going to school. I was, mind you, again, I was working the grave shift. I was then leaving my job at 7 a.m. and starting school at 9. I was straight from the job, smelling terrible, going to school, studying. And then after I would leave that, then go and try and hustle you for your dry cleaning. Like, that's legit, right? And as I started getting more and more customers, eventually the, the balance starts to shift. And I started noticing, wow, like, I can't be in school because I have orders to fill. And so one day I'm in business law class and I'm cutting a contract with my mentor in real life and I'm sitting in a classroom and the lady's teaching me about how to cut a contract. And I thought, why am I gonna be in this classroom when I have a real life example? And it hit me. And I packed up my things and I said, yo, teach, I'm out. And that was my last day. The next time I was in school, I was being paid to teach people how to be successful in business. But that is how you nurture the side hustle. You put the time in, you put the time in, you put the reps in, right? Like you can't build a six pack unless you do sit-ups, right? You got to put, it's, business is a similar muscle. Flex that muscle, build the side hustle. Eventually, you're going to start noticing your priorities shift over into the full-time hustle. I want to talk to you a little bit about the financial aspect of it because you know you mentioned that a lot of times it's it's actually not money but like how do you go about financial wellness and planning for both the short and long term during the process of going full-time entrepreneur well it's interesting because if you want to walk the path of an entrepreneur your relationship with financial planning is very peculiar it's very distinct um, when you have a job, you have steady income that you can count on. The rule that I, you know, that is talked about often is 50-30-20. So 50% of your income goes to needs, 30% of your income goes to wants, and 20% of your income goes to savings. That's what the institutions want. You know, that's what they put out there. That's the appropriate thing. That's responsible. But being an entrepreneur is kind of not responsible. Like, you kind of have to take what you got 
And the amount that you invest in yourself is directly equivalent to the amount that you believe in yourself. So how much do you believe in yourself? Because I believe in myself 100%. At least I tell myself that. Sometimes I doubt myself, but sometimes you got to tell that to yourself until you force yourself to believe it. So for me, financial planning has really meant, hmm, I'm glad you asked this question because it's, it's a really interesting space. Let me invest in my ability to earn. If you're in your 20s, like you better not be thinking about your retirement account. You're in your 20s. This is the time that you have to be aggressive, to play big. Like you can always get a job. Anyone here is, you know, if you're in this room, you know, you're obviously, you're driven, you're talented. You can go out to the marketplace and get a job. Don't come to me with like this, I'm going to invest 20% of my stuff for retirement. That's not where we're at right now. You need to be investing that in your ability to hone a skill. And when you hone this skill and you become exceptional at this skill through meticulous, you know, hours behind the craft, all of a sudden you're going to start being requested to appear places to exercise your skill. And you start getting paid an outsized amount because you're going to look amongst your peers and you're going to say, damn, I thought we were on the same level, but you guys haven't been putting in the work and I have. And as you put in more work, eventually the creme rises to the top and you start earning more. So what I think is a better formula for someone in their 20s, rather than putting away pennies in a savings account, put that all into yourself so you can hone. And when you can 10x your earning potential, you're in a much, much better place for the future. A much better place for the future. Eventually, we were able to dig deeper into the awesome actions and steps he's taken in helping the marginalized communities build a concept that was also once foreign to him, and that's generational wealth. With John's mission at Harlem Capital Partners and their efforts to invest in 1,000 different businesses, we asked them what exactly went into making this investment strategy. Why did he choose these specific people for this specific path, and why uplift the marginalized in these underserved communities? So just to back up and establish some context, you mentioned I started an incubator uh, in Harlem, co-found Harlem. It's a non-for-profit, it's really beautiful. At some point, one of my biggest donors at this non-for-profit comes from a very big Jewish family. And they said, John, we've been watching you, we love what you're doing. Take your same energy and come work on our company for a year. We have a fund. We think you have an eye for talent. We want you to come and operate this fund that we have and help, you know, we were gonna invest in real estate technology. I said, Mr. Rose, respectfully, I know nothing about real estate. He said, we know real estate. It's a four generation, multi, they're a multi-generational real estate dynasty family. I said, okay, I'll, I'll take you up on it. I worked with them for a year, year and a half. We made 10 investments together. The reason I share that is because working with a family, a legacy family, made a very, very deep impact on me, and particularly a Jewish family. The Jewish community is one that I admire, admire very much. I think that they've done a lot of excellent things and have instilled a lot of great principles and you know, the, the bedrock and the foundation is very beautiful, and they think generational wealth. When I finished my year there with the Rose family, I said, I can't stay here respectfully. Like, what I've learned here is so valuable and it needs to exist in our communities. So I left Wall Street and I came uptown 
And that's when we started Harlem Capital with the whole idea of helping to build generational wealth in our communities. And one thing that I want to clarify, because it gets talked about like this Mother Teresa thing, like, oh, good for you. You're investing in, you know, black people and women. I'm like, yeah, but I'm a capitalist. Like, I'm a diehard businessman. I will sell you whatever I can sell you. That's what an entrepreneur is. So I just want to set the record straight. Diversity happens to be a very good business case right now. Because let's analyze venture capital for a moment. In 2017, there was 84 roughly billion dollars invested into venture capital. Less than 4% total went to women and minorities, less than out of $84 billion, which by the way, it sounds like a big number. It's really just a sliver of the total amount that's invested into a bunch of stuff, you know, treasury stock, all of that. I'm learned, I've learned all the stuff as I've gone on. But let's venture is a tiny sliver. Once you get really rich and you have real estate and all this other stuff and you need to diversify, you look at venture, tiny sliver. And then when you zoom in on that, you say, wow, the majority of it Literally, it's just going to white males, which is cool, no, you know, no harm, no foul. But then you're telling me 4%, 4 to 6% total is going to women, blacks, Latinos, anyone who's not a white male? That smells like a business opportunity to me. That smells like money. Why? Because millennials, and particularly diverse millennials, we're now the largest segment of the population. And by the end of this year, we'll be the largest segment of the working population which means lots of spending power, which means decisions, which means we're gonna be able to dictate and command what it is that rises to prominence. We're gonna, our spending power is gonna result in the next public companies. We are already doing it. And you're telling me that 96% of the people that are tasked with creating the solutions don't look like us? They're not gonna be able to create what we resonate with. So don't get it twisted like, yes, it's 100% my life's work to you know, uplift my community, but it's also really good business. Really good business. I love it. So let's not lose sight of that. Now, before we say goodbye to such a charismatic, insightful guest, John gives a very eye-opening perspective on the show. He was able to talk a bit more on what it means to be selfish as an entrepreneur and how his mistakes or perceived mistakes helped shape him into the leader that he is now. I struggle with my own sense of leadership sometimes. And I'm just being vulnerable and transparent here because, um, you know, there's so many things within me that I have yet to figure out. And I'm very intense, if you guys can't tell, about like my work and the way I do things. And, and sometimes, you know, early in my career, that has caused a lot of strain in relationships, whether co-founders or, you know, it's, there's a mismatched level of intensity. Um, and so I've shifted in my leadership style from being a micromanager to trusting more. But then I've gone through times where I've trusted more and attempts to be a good manager. And then the product doesn't come out like how I want it to. And there's a, a, a guy named Joni Ive, who, if you have an iPhone, um, it's because of Joni Ive. He's a designer. He's the main designer on the iPhone. And he was telling stories about Steve Jobs when he passed. And he said, hey, he shared in a story I'll share with you guys. So he was hearing people were upset with Steve Jobs because, you know, he was kind of a dick. And 
And uh, Joni I was like, all right, I'm going you know, to tell Steve Jobs because he had Steve Jobs' ear. And so people were like, yo, you have Steve Jobs' ear. You got to tell him he's got to cut it out. So, you know, he mustered up the courage. He called the meeting. He finally sat down with Steve Jobs and he, he goes, you know, he, he tells it like it is. He said, hey, man, you know, you're, you're being a little hard on people. You know, people are starting to, you know, not like this. Da, da, da. And he was expecting Steve Jobs to say, oh, man, I'm sorry. Da, da, da. And he goes, you're selfish. And Joni I was shocked. He was expecting an apology. Steve Jobs was like, you're selfish. He's like, you care more about what people think about you than the product. Like, you would rather preserve your view, like the way people perceive you. You'd rather not rock the boat. You'd rather, you know, then do whatever in your mind you feel is best for the product. Steve Jobs had a purity, a love of the craft. Kanye West, I put in the same boat. Um, you know, that is art to me. And I, so um, it's coming to me here because you're, with your question about leadership, I think it's all about finding what style resonates with you. There are many different ways to win. Like Gary Vee is the type of leader that's, you know, very nice and like the empathy and like that's his whole approach. I'm now discovering that my way of leading simply means to listen very intensely to myself, which I'm discovering means I don't like holding back. I am outspoken. I will say things that are inconvenient and that cost me career capital and social capital if I feel like that's what needs to be said. You know what I'm saying? And it's the more difficult path, but I feel like, damn, if I'm one in a million for my community, you go to any kid on the block who grew up on 173rd in Fort Washington and Washington Heights, and I guarantee you, I'm probably one in a million. And if that's true, I have a responsibility. I can't be selfish and be concerned with what other people, you know, not rocking the boat. You know, I'm getting endorsement deals now and I'm getting pressure from sponsors to taper down my personality. I was like, man, you got it twisted. I don't do this to eat breakfast. I've built my own value chain. I'm dependent, you know, I, my, my livelihood comes from things that I've built for myself. And so, I feel like leadership is staying 100% unapologetically, authentically true to that compass that you started with. Mm. Create more leaders. Thank you. John Henry, everybody. Well, leaders, that's our show. Again, special thanks to our sponsors at Prudential and the Grammy Museum Experience Prudential Center for their wonderful help in bringing the Leaders Create Leaders event series and podcast to life. Make sure you go to lclnork.com. That's lclnork.com for more details on where you can find this episode and many more exciting things to come, especially some of the future episodes that are about to drop. This has been your host, Gerard Adams, representing Leaders Create Leaders. We'll see you next time. Sponsored by the Prudential Insurance Company of America, Newark, New Jersey.